only 30 miles off the coast of Cape Cod. The tuna are moving, and they're biting. All that you have to do to catch one is have a sharp hook and some bait. And the rewards for doing so are substantial. Rumor has it the Japanese will pay up to $50,000 for a nice bluefin. And this is why many would-be fishermen are ignoring Coast Guard warnings, and they're heading out to sea in small boats. What these new fishermen don't realize is the problem isn't catching a tuna. The problem comes after they're caught. On September 23rd, the Christiane, a 19-foot boat, capsized while doing battle with the tuna. That same day, a 27-foot boat, Basic Instinct, suffered the same fate. While official business, a 28-footer, was swamped after it hooked on to a 600-pound tuna. The tuna pulled it underwater. These fishermen underestimated the power of the fish they were trying to catch. That's what temptation does to us. It takes us by surprise. It looks great on the surface. It's only after we hook into it that we discover its strength. And this isn't something that just a few of us experience. To be human is to be tempted. All of us experience temptation. But not all of us are tempted by the same thing. Author Todd Hunter, he studied the top temptations that Americans face. The people he surveyed said they struggled with the following temptations, either often or sometimes. Worrying or being anxious, 60%. Now, I can identify with that after last night. I'm getting ready to, to go to bed, and right when my phone is at 1%, I go to charge it, and the power goes out. And at that moment, the anxiety started to creep in, and I faced the temptation to, to worry. And so I had to just calm myself and say, this is out of my control. God, you've got it. This is a real temptation for so many people. Uh, procrastinating or putting things off, 60%. Eating too much, 55%. Spending too much time on media, 44%. Being lazy, 41%. Spending more money than they could afford, 35%. Gossiping about others, 26%. Being jealous or envious of others, 24%. Viewing pornography, 18%. Abusing alcohol or drugs, 11%. When asked if they did anything specific to avoid giving in to temptation, 41% said yes, and 59% said no. When people were asked why they gave in to temptation, the top four reasons were, I'm not really sure, 50%. To, to get away or escape from real life, 20%. To feel less pain or loneliness, 8%. To satisfy other people's expectations of me, 7%. Why do we struggle with temptation? What makes it so hard to resist? Is there any hope to overcome? Today, we'll find answers to these questions and more in James chapter 1. In the first half of this chapter, we explored last week 
that after greeting God's scattered people, James focuses on the trials that we go through in life. Trials that can hurt and be quite painful. Trials that many are experiencing right now. Yet James says that we can consider it all joy if we allow these trials to help us become more like Jesus. And where he turns his attention next may seem a little strange, especially if you read the original language, because it's the same word used. But James goes from talking about trials to temptation. And isn't that how it often works? But when you go through a trial, that's when you are most susceptible to be tempted? Satan doesn't fight fair. He kicks you when you're down. I know for me that that I'm most susceptible to temptation when I'm stressed. I'm working hard. I feel overwhelmed. And I get to this place where I feel like God ought to to give me something for all that I'm doing. That he owes me something. So I'll go through a trial and maybe there's a, a prayer that hasn't been answered. And I'll start feeling some anxiety. And I'm, I'm working, I'm doing things for God, and I feel like what I'm doing is not being honored, and it's easy for me to give in to sinful attitudes and actions. To say, it's not my fault, I'm stressed right now. We get to a place where we justify and we rationalize our actions. James 1 addresses this head on. This is what James says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13. When... Not if, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, which would be avoiding my own responsibility for my sin and blaming God. Say, well, how do you do that? A couple of ways. Either this is just the way God made me, or the circumstances that God put me in made this inevitable. No. It says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but... Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So we are responsible. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. In Romans chapter 6, Paul will say the same thing. That the wages of sin is death. If you reject the gospel, unless you accept Jesus, the free gift of salvation he offers... The wages of your sin is death. Don't be deceived. Verse 16, my dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift. Now, the word gift there is closely related to a word that that means giving a dose of medicine or a cure. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So if we were to break down the progression of thought that James has in this passage into three parts, I think it would be this. The spawn of temptation, where it comes from and who's to blame. The snare of temptation, how it works and how it leads to shame. And then finally, the safeguard to temptation. The safeguard that we can only get from God. So first, what's the spawn of temptation? What's the source? Well, there's a number of things that that can tempt us. I can't choose to live in a world 
free of temptation. But at the same time, we can't just blame the world around us. Because there's always a gap that exists between the stimulus and the response. I get to choose. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, the temptations in your life are not different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. God always, always provides a way out. And this passage will show us what that way out is. But first, I want to ask you a few questions. Who deserves the credit or the blame for where you find yourself in life? Who's the biggest influence on your life? Whose advice do you usually follow the most? Now, I'm not exactly sure how you would answer that, but if I'm being honest, while other people have helped me or hurt me along the way, I have influenced my life more than anyone else. I am mostly responsible for where I'm at in life. And while along the way I've tried to listen to the advice of others or the opinions of others, usually in the end, I will do what I think is right and what I think is best. I guess I can say it this way. You are the common denominator in every bad decision you've made in your life. Now, we live in a day and age where we don't like to think that we are our own biggest problem, right? We don't live in a culture that encourages reflection and self-examination. The only exception that I can think of is in a recovery group. When you're in a recovery group, it is, it is mandatory for you to do some self-examination in order to get help. But we, we would mostly rather prefer to be victims of our circumstances. We would rather, you know, blame our upbringing or blame something that's happened to us in the past. And that right there is what keeps us from living in victory right now and in the future. Unless, unless we're able to grab a hold of God's solution. God's desire is for you and me to live in victory so that we can shine his light in the world around us. But there's no way that, that I can change the world unless I first understand what it takes to change myself. Now, thankfully, James is going to show us how that works. And the first thing that starts to change is when I own up and take responsibility. So rather than avoid it, rather than deny it, rather than blaming Rather than quoting Taylor Swift, look what you made me do. Okay, Blaming doesn't help. When I say it's not my fault, what do I do? I point my finger at the government. I point my finger at my spouse who hurt me, my boss at work, that teacher that didn't like me, my parents who disciplined me, my, my genetics, right? We are all experts at shifting the blame. We even blame God. It's really nothing new. It's always been that way from the very beginning. If you look at the first few pages of the Bible, we see that Adam and Eve were given every good thing that a good God could give them. They lived in a perfect paradise. They could do whatever they wanted to do except eat from one tree. Just think about how generous our God is. So out of all the trees, just one was off limits. But everything wasn't good enough for them. 
They were deceived into thinking that God was holding out on them, so they rebelled and they lost it all. Have you ever thought about what the first game in the history of the world was? The first game ever was hide-and-seek. We see in Genesis chapter 3, and it would be helpful if you would just go to Genesis 3 and have your Bibles there, verses 1 through 13. We're not going to read a lot of these verses. We're just going to talk about the progression of thought that happens in these verses. And so it will be helpful for you to, to see what's going on here. In Genesis 3, you see that Adam and Eve ran away from God. They turned his back, they turned their back on his love. We're told in Genesis 3 that they used to meet with God and walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. But because of their sin, they go into shame and hiding. Now, it's important to realize that God doesn't come looking for them in order to blame them and to shame them or even to make them feel bad. God doesn't need to find them. He knows exactly where they are and what they've done. He's not hiding. They are. When an all-knowing God asks questions, it's not because he needs to know the answer. It's because he wants us to. He's hoping that, that they'll own up and they'll tell the truth. He wants to help, so he starts asking some, some diagnostic questions. Adam is anxious. He's afraid. He's ashamed. And you'll notice he doesn't say, I've done a bad thing. It's, I'm a bad person. I've got to hide that, that ugly part of me that I don't like. Well, let's keep in mind, they are God's creation. They're his children. God had no problem with their nakedness. It's a picture of transparency, vulnerability, safety, having nothing to hide. And this was always God's original intention for us. And so now God wants them to check the source of their thinking, the, the spawn of their temptation. So if you look at verse 11 there in Genesis 3, okay, I want you to read that. And imagine not hearing an angry voice, but I want you to imagine hearing a voice of kindness and concern. Because God is the kindest father. He is offering Adam and Eve an opportunity to come clean. He doesn't want to judge the bad thing they did. He loves his children. We read in Psalm 103, verse 10, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Look at verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. God made Adam in his own image from dust, and then gave him life by breathing his own spirit into him. God knows how we are made. He knows that we are frail and weak. So he wants Adam and Eve to tell the truth about what they've done, because you can't begin to deal with your sin while denying your sin. If it grows, and it spreads, and it spoils. Richard Rohr says, if we do not transform our pain, we will always transmit it. So God is saying, if you tell me where it hurts, I can make it better. But you see, they've been deceived about what kind of God he is. And that is the root deception that led them falling into this temptation. This is why they hide. 
I remember when our kids were younger, we had to ration their candy intake. And if I'm being honest, we, we still do. But our kids will come home from trick-or-treating, they'll have just bags full of candy, right? And they'll just start kind of mowing through the candy. And we're like, time out, hold on. Like, you got to take it easy here. Like, you can have some of it, but you can't eat all of it. You need to save some for later or you'll make yourself sick. And so we institute a rule, like, you need to get permission before you go into the pantry and get candy. So one day I see that the pantry door is open and the bag of candy is missing. And so I go up to Jude's room, and I ask, I said, Jude, have, have you been eating the candy? And he turns and he says, no. And I see chocolate smeared on his mouth, and I see candy wrappers on the floor. Now, I'm no Sherlock Holmes, but a little deductive reasoning leads me to believe that Jude ate some chocolate. And as humans, our natural reaction when giving in to temptation is to hide, to deny, and to deflect. So what's Adam's next move? Does he step up and take responsibility like a man? No. He blames his wife. And he doesn't blame himself. And if you read closely enough, you realize he doesn't even just blame Eve. He blames God. He says, the woman you gave me. God realizes that he's not getting anywhere with Adam, so he turns his attention to Eve and gives her the same opportunity to come clean. And she responds by shifting the blame, too. But it's a step better than Adam because at least she admits that she's been deceived. And she points to the serpent, to Satan, as the reason for the mess that they're in, not God. So let's go back to James chapter 1. Why does James say, don't be deceived? Because we get deceived. We get tempted. I can try to put the blame everywhere else, but one thing's for sure. It's not God's fault. It's not just how he made you. It's not inevitable that just because you had a rough day at work that you got drunk. But, but God made the beer. No, God made you, but he didn't make you do anything. Who's responsible? I am. We are responsible. Able. We are able to respond. James here says that God cannot tempt you. Literally because he himself is untemptable. Now keep in mind, James has an older brother named Jesus who never ever sinned. It was only after Jesus rose from the dead that James realized the reason why, and that's because he's God. And God is holy. God is immune to evil. And that is really important to grasp, that, that God is immune to sin, which means he has nothing to tempt you with. If you check the source of your thoughts, that attitude, that action, you'll find it never comes from him. God only sends you good and perfect ones. All right, so why not blame Satan? I don't want to give Satan as much credit as Eve did. We can't just say, well, the devil made me do it. Satan can't make you do anything. You and I possess free will. So back to Genesis 3, verse 3, we see how all this trouble started for Adam and Eve. 
right? They're both gathered together, but Eve is the only one who does the talking. And Satan asked that question, did God really say? Did he really say? And the correct answer to that question is no, he didn't. He gave us all of these wonderful trees. We get to live here and work here and be in this incredible paradise. We enjoy all this amazing food. So with the authority that God has given me, serpent, get away. You're not welcome here. But that's not what happened. The first temptation is misrepresenting who God is. Saying that, that he's stingy. Saying that, that he's holding out on us. Saying that, that he doesn't want to give us any good gifts. That is the first temptation. And it's really important to remember that because the first whisper of temptation says that good thing that, that God wants to, wants to give you, that good thing that, that you're enjoying, it really isn't good enough. You, you really need to, to go and, and go after that other thing, and then you'll be happy. And the deception started to work. Why? Because if you'll notice, God never said, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. But they swallowed that lie, and then something started to die. And not just physically, immediately, eventually. And spiritually, death came into our world as sin started to infect it. So if you look there at verses 4 and 5, we can summarize it this way. You can't trust God for what's best for you. He's a liar. He wants to keep something good from you. So, so go do what you want, and then you'll be free. Why does the fruit look so good? Because it is good. God only makes good things. If you read the creation account, over and over it says God created and it was good. But in taking the fruit, Eve thought, if I do this, then I'll know better than God. I'll know what's right and I'll know what's not. And that's the key. What's good for me? I get to choose what's right and what's not. I get to choose and decide what is right for me. And then if you look at verses 6 and 7, you'll see a familiar progression there. They saw it. They wanted it. Desire took over. They ate it. Then they're ashamed. They cover up. When confronted, they try to shift the blame. It's the same progression that James shares in James chapter 1. So we've seen the, the spawn of temptation. Next, secondly, notice we see the pattern for the snare of temptation. The, the snare. And, and James describes this so well. And if this seems familiar to you, it's because we're all the same. This is how it works for every person. Verse 14. Each and every person is dragged away when, when what? When, when they are dragged away, that, that word there, dragged away, it's, it's a hunting term. It's like when you, when you get your foot stuck in the trap, okay? They are dragged away by what? By their own evil desires. Literally the lust. It's a different bait for you than it is for me. And what one person finds repulsive, another person finds enticing, and vice versa. And then they are enticed. 
And that word entice is a fascinating word in the original language because it's a fishing term. That that shiny, beautiful, enticing lure, it looks so tasty, but there's a hook in it. And the hook is attached to a line. And that line is held by a fisherman who is sitting there on the shore with a net. Then, after desire has conceived, so it starts out just as an embryo. It's just a little tiny idea. Oh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? It gives birth to what? Sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. It doesn't stay small. It grows and it grows until it takes over your life. I have heard it said before that sin takes you farther than you want to go, it keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. That is what sin does in our lives. What, what promises you freedom and pleasure, what, what looks to make you happy and feel alive leads to death. A death of trust, a death of relationships, death of self-respect, a death of, of reputation. And in the end, when we physically die, if we have not been born again spiritually through Jesus, it leads to death forever without any connection to God. So blame cannot shift it. Shame only makes it worse. If I try to cover up and I try to, to hide that ugly part of myself, it just grows in the darkness. So what happens? try harder, I promise myself I'll do better, that it's all up to me, that, that I've got to make this work. But just like Adam and Eve, the fig leaves begin to fall apart, don't they? Trying to be acceptable to God by, by, by good works, hoping that the good that I do outweighs the bad that I do, doesn't work. We don't get better by working harder. So here's where we find ourselves. James has talked about the spawn of temptation, okay? It's never God. And then he's shown us the snare of temptation, how it leads to death, how, how none of us can fix ourselves because we've all fallen for it. We, we are the problem. Finally, third, we see the safeguard to temptation. The, the only solution we find in verse 16, James says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. We've already talked about deception. Don't be deceived into thinking that God is the one to blame. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can get yourself off the hook. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is your Father. He is only light. In Him there is no darkness. He has not come to zap us. He's come to give us free gifts if we will open up our hands to receive them. Now, if, if we refuse to receive what he offers us, that sin will lead to death, but that is not God's desire. What I want you to understand is that every temptation is an opportunity to choose God over sin. Every temptation that you experience is an opportunity to choose what is good and perfect over what is cheap and damaging. Every temptation is an opportunity to choose what is for your ultimate good over your temporary pleasure. 
One time in an interview, Henry Nowen said this. He said, I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something ten times more attractive to Jesus. Saying no to my lust, my greed, my needs, and the world's powers takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all of my energy to saying no. And what James is saying is God is that thing that is ten times more attractive. God is ultimate good, ultimate beauty, ultimate perfection. He is the ultimate giver of good gifts. And when we say yes to God, we are saying yes to what is ultimately good. We are saying yes to where we find our ultimate joy, so much more than anything that the world offers and promises. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That's the only way to be saved, is to die and then be reborn. To experience new birth by believing the truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus, who said he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I want to give you the opportunity to receive freedom and salvation, but you have to receive the cure first. And that cure is Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking that sounds a little narrow. You might think, hey, there's all kinds of ideas that exist in this world about what's right and wrong. There's thousands of philosophies and religions, and that's true. But I want you to imagine for a moment that I had a pill that I was going to offer you. And this pill both prevented and cured cancer. It was tested on billions of people, and it worked 100% of the time to every person who received it. Would you say, yeah, but, but I know some people who didn't take it, and they seem to be doing just fine. Would you accuse me of being narrow-minded if I were to offer you the one cure that I know will work? The good and perfect dose, given for free, coming from the Father of light, that's offered as the cure for the darkness of sinful humanity. Now listen, you have every right to say, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go vegan instead. I'm going to do this juice cleanse. I read about it online. A lot of people seem to be doing it. It works out really good for them. No one's forcing you to take the pill. You can do whatever you choose to do. But I want you to know the pill doesn't work just because you know other people who have taken it. Just because you know other people who are Christians doesn't mean that just because they believe, just because they've received it, means that you receive it. No, you have to receive it yourself personally. Remember, we have all fallen for different temptations. And that leads to sin, and sin leads to death. It is fatal 100% in every human. But Jesus, the Son of God, he came to this earth, he walked among us, and he was immune to it. He never had the disease of sin, which is why he was able to be raised from the dead. The Lord of life could not be hold, held down by death. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. It says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are yet, without sin. His perfect sinless blood was shed on the cross as the one and only antidote for our sinfulness. My favorite hymn says, Jesus paid it all. 
all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and washed it white as snow. So when you stop shifting the blame, when you get tired of living in shame, when you don't cover up, but you own up and you say yes to Jesus as the king of your life, what happens is you receive every good and perfect gift the Father wants to give you for free. So I want to ask you today, are you ready to receive the free gift that God offers you through Jesus Christ? All it requires are open hands. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a good God who gives us good gifts to enjoy. I pray, God, that as we go through temptation, not if, but when we go through temptation, that we will not try to go through it ourselves. But God, I pray that we would see that what you offer us is greater than anything that is laid out before us given by the world. God, help us to see you as, as beautiful, as good, as, as what's true and what's perfect. God, that you are the source of our eternal joy. And so God, I pray that by looking at you and looking at what you have given us in Christ, we would choose you over sin. And God, I pray that we would realize that as the church, that we do not go through this alone, but you have surrounded us with a body, with brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, so that we are not alone in this battle. And as believers, we're not alone because we have your spirit living inside of us. And God, if there is anybody here today that does not have a relationship with Jesus, that today would be the day they would make that decision. And they would know I don't have to be owned by sin. But I can have victory over sin. I can win the war and temptation because I, I have a new heart, a new spirit. I'm not alone. God, I pray that all of us, no matter how we came in here today, that we would all leave seeing you as good Father who gives good gifts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.